Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, my name's David Yarrow. Welcome to my podcast, In Focus. Over the last few years, I've traveled fairly relentlessly around the world, following my passion of photography. These are the stories behind the photographs. In this episode, I talk about my trip in 2017 to North Korea. At the time, it did feel as if it was behind enemy lines. And over the course of that week, I managed to get the picture of Blade Runner, which the Sunday Times printed over two pages. I felt that there was something about North Korea that three or four years ago became much more within people's consciousness, that it was a nation we really knew nothing about. And if you Googled certain towns in the east coast of North Korea, you wouldn't get any photographs. Now, as someone that's specializing in original content, I can't tell you how exciting that is. That put fuel on my fire of my desire to go somewhere where, quite simply, other photographers weren't going. The starting point on our research and our collaboration was with a European Member of Parliament, a Labour Member of Parliament, an MEP in Brussels, who had been to Pyongyang several times. The genesis of all this was that I had a chance to go and photograph President Putin with the help of the British Embassy in Washington. I did quite a lot of spade work to try and get in and photograph Putin. The idea was to photograph him in Siberia. Because of then a deterioration of the relationship between the new regime in Washington and Moscow, unfortunately, that came to nothing. And I think as a kind of token gesture, the network then turned around and said, well, we've failed on this and you have made a couple of trips to Washington, but we think we might be able to get you into North Korea if you're interested. And of course I said, well, absolutely interested. My starting premise is that North Korea is uh, its a bit like the UK to the extent that so many people associate London and think London is the UK. And then the rest of it is just like an annex. And North Korea is very much Pyongyang. Certainly 99% of the foreign visitors that go to North Korea go to Pyongyang. They certainly all have to go to Pyongyang, but very few go into the hinterland. And my goal was to try and go further east. 
So rather than go west, young man, it was go east, young man. And the further you got out of Pyongyang, the more things you could see in terms of the country being stuck in a time warp. And that was my preconception that the government dress up Pyongyang to be clean, law-abiding, orderly, westernized in some parts. But you go outside those city walls and who knows what you might find. It's well known that there's really only kind of two ways you can get into North Korea legally. One is by train through Russia. The other is to fly in from Beijing. And that's how most people get into North Korea. There's, there's two flights, three flights a week. And what I discovered in Beijing was that just before you board the plane, there's a duty-free, I wouldn't say that it rivals the duty-frees in Heathrow, but it's a duty-free that really only sells whiskey. And it sells whiskey purely for the purpose of taking that whiskey to North Korea. We were told of this beforehand that a bottle of scotch gets you a long way in North Korea. So I remember going onto the plane with six bottles of Johnny Walker and I thought I'd be the outlier, but everyone had six bottles of Johnny Walker. There must have been more Johnny Walker on that plane than fuel. From the word go, the North Koreans that I met were very counter to the popularly told stereotype that you're led to believe of being aggressive, hostile to foreigners. They're a nation of pacifists, and uh, the vast majority of them that I met with and intermingled with were very friendly, albeit not people that were blessed with a huge amount of English. I had a minder, and that minder had a driver, and then that minder had a deputy minder. So I traveled the whole time in North Korea in the company of three North Koreans. And my strategy was to behave very, very well to begin with on the basis that that would potentially lull them into a false sense of security. And then I would start to get my cameras out. If I'd got my cameras out from getting through the airport, I think that would have raised alarm bells and I had to win their trust. They were very conscious of what I could photograph and what I couldn't photograph. And uh, they clearly wanted it to be a little bit of a PR exercise. And actually, the reality was that a lot of the pictures that I took in North Korea did shed light on a culture that was a surprise to people, but partly because that culture was a very happy one. I remember going into a bar, and they do drink a lot, all the drinking beer, and being offered beers by so many different people. And the beers come along on kind of what looks like sort of hospital trolleys, which is rather alarming, but they'll pre-pour the beers, so you'll get these people with trolleys and about 60 beers on them. But for the first two days, I didn't take a picture. I just was deferential, respectful, mannered, went to bed when I was told, and um, got up when I was told, and asked lots of questions. Of course, you're given tours of goodness knows how many factories, the ones that they want to show off as being in line, or some cases ahead of Western standards, or football academies, or theater productions. So we wanted to get out of Pyongyang, and I think on the third day, we got out and headed east. And that's when I started to get excited.
They don't like you taking pictures of people in uniform unless it's a public parade and, of course, their national day in the same way that you saw in the old Soviet Union and you do still now in Russia. That's a day for flag-waving and a celebration of their military might. They're fine about photographing that. I wasn't there then. But in terms of training exercises with hundreds of identically dressed people effectively goose-stepping across an enormous square is not something that you really want to be seen to be photographing, but there's always going to be opportunities because there are so many soldiers wandering around doing exactly that. But yes, you have to be careful. And my minder would also know that if he allowed me to take pictures that the North Korean state were not happy with, then he would be in trouble as well. Goodness knows what would happen to him. So whilst he was a charming man, he was nervous. And I respected that and I didn't want him to be nervous. So there was a lot of Johnny Walker and effort and manners that went into the first two or three days. Traveling to the other side of the world, you can be transported back a hundred years. Not in Pyongyang, but east of there and on the east coast. Of course, they filled out a full itinerary for me every day of having to go and see some fishing factory or whatever. But I wanted to go and see gritty stuff. And as the week developed, I was exposed to more and more of that. We went to the biggest beach holiday resort in North Korea. It sounds a bit of a kind of oxymoron, North Korean beach resort, but they do exist and hundreds of people on a beach, all partying, barbecuing, singing, and everyone welcomed me. It was the reverse of what most people would think. There was a scale of hospitality and smiles, a lot of dancing. People have their music systems out, they're drinking in the sunshine in a kind of wooded area just back from the beach. And the one thing that I learned fairly quickly is that you don't want to play any of these people at table tennis because they're just so good. I lost 21-4 to a three-year-old and I think he gave me the four points just to please the crowd. But when we started, there was probably just two people watching. And when he got to about 18, 19, I was still hovering around at three or four points. I reckon there were two or 300 people around the table because they hadn't seen someone play table tennis so badly before in their life. And the fact that I was maybe a different color to them and looked different, the whole thing just made for their day out. When I first arrived at that resort, I was on my own with the four minders. And there, everywhere I went after that, the crowd behind me just grew in fascination because it was a novel experience to them, but there was no hostility. Everyone was offering me food or alcohol. I don't know quite what sort of alcohol it was. And of course you have to take it, so you're going to end up hammered after a few hours at the beach in North Korea and still losing at table tennis every time. So that was a very surreal day. There was another quite surreal day we had where we were invited to go and photograph a football academy. And this was a football academy in the middle of nowhere. And the roads, the roads over there are like going back a hundred years and there's no cars on the roads. I arrived there, there was not really any photographic opportunities, but that's all part of the process. You have to take one for the team. In order to get the good photograph opportunities, you're gonna have to have a few duds along the way where you pretend you're interested, but you're going, there's no pictures here. And the day at the football camp was one of those days because there really wasn't anything. But the extraordinary thing was that all the kids there were Russian 
And I thought, my goodness, here's an insight into this relationship between North Korea and Russia in that there's a summer football camp and almost everyone that is there are Russian. And they've gone to North Korea for a holiday with their families and the North Koreans are putting them up in hotels and whatever. So that was quite an insight into that particular relationship. I'm not someone that likes long car journeys in the UK because it's so boring. But the road going east from Pyongyang to the east coast, as you get out of the capital, the tarmac becomes more and more suspect. You lose the white line down the middle and you lose any traffic. So you really do have the roads to yourself. The countryside is beautiful. I mean, you go through these valleys, green valleys, and it is primarily an agricultural-led economy. And the rural economy in North Korea is dominated by agriculture in a communist way that really could have existed 300 years ago. You see horse and carts where the wheel isn't even quite round. It's almost like they've barely invented the wheel. And people doing the most primitive of things. All along the side of the road, there are people weeding. Every stretch of the road, there are people weeding the roads. And you think, why are they doing that? It's not like there's anyone that lives near here. And of course, it is the communist state. It is making sure that everyone works. I doubt they get paid much for you know, weeding the road that no one uses, but that's what people do. So it is the most basic of economies. Then when you get into a town, which pop up, now and again, it's not as if there's anything you recognize there. There's no Western franchises, clearly. You can't sort of run into a Burger King. But it is a beautiful landscape. And then when you do see an industrial plant with these vast chimneys that are exactly like the stories are told of Lancashire in 1820, 1830, Lari-esque. These enormous chimneys against a green veld and the smoke coming out the chimney and then these little people wandering around, dwarfed by the big chimney. That was one of the better pictures I took there. I think my favourite story going east was I wanted to watch Liverpool. I wanted to watch the Champions League match. And I asked my minder whether there was anywhere I could watch the football match and he just laughed. I think we just drove on for another half hour and then he turned around and he said, Actually, I think there might be somewhere you could go and watch a football match. And this was not far from one song. But uh, as a preface to this, I should tell you a story that in 1970, a Japanese airline was hijacked going from Tokyo to Kyoto. And it was hijacked by the Japanese Red Army that were kind of Che Guevara stuff. They were idealists and they were all rather glamorous people. They weren't terrorists in today's perception of terrorism. I think they actually hijacked the plane with samurai swords, which is particularly novel. I don't know how they got them through the x-ray machine, but they, they did. And they wanted to take the plane to Cuba to go and see their friend. And they only had enough fuel to go to South Korea. So they landed in South Korea and the South Koreans said, listen, we'll blow up the plane unless you remove all the hostages. So all the passengers' hostages were released other than one Japanese pilot because they couldn't fly. And they only had enough fuel left to land in Pyongyang. And as people that are fluent in history, particularly in that part of the world, will know, relationships between North Korea and Japan are really not very good at all. So when the six hijackers and one pilot landed in Pyongyang, the pilot was obviously not in trouble because they realized that he'd been hijacked. 
but the six Japanese hijackers were told that they were never going back to Japan and they could either be executed or they could take asylum and, and live in uh, North Korea for the rest of their life. And these six people, this was 1971, so this was 45 years later, live in a small house and they're able to watch Western TV because they know what Western TV's kind of like. So I went around and had some whiskey with them and with the hijackers and <laughs> watched a football match. It was all very surreal. By then I was having quite a bit of fun with the minders, but what I was looking for was not coming. I was looking for an industrial landscape, either inside or outside. They were smart enough to know what I was looking to try and get. And they also didn't want me to be disappointed. And I think the second last day, the main minder said to me, you want to see bigger steel factory in North Korea? I said, Sure, and this is, this is a steel factory that hasn't changed in terms of its architecture or its manufacturing process since it was made at the time of the Korean War. So it is incredibly antiquated, but vast. And that was an opportunity. I really do think I was the first Western photographer to go in there. And that was like being thrown back in a time warp. There were so many fires literal fire, the furnaces were open. So you could see there was so much energy in the room. Not that I'd know, but it's quite my preconception of what parts of Wales might have looked like or parts of Glasgow might have looked like 100 years ago. What Port Talbot might have looked like when it first started making steel, I don't know. But it's certainly not the world as we know it now. You know, we have a lot of debates in the office about naming photographs as a democracy, and, and we tend to name photographs after either films, books, songs, poems. Try and give a reference point, but it's got to be smart, and I think this one is smart. Part of Blade Runner's narrative was a dystopian one, and I, I don't think there's necessarily dystopia. It's just there was a rawness, industrial rawness and a grittiness, and those blacks against bits of green and bits of red with very small people wandering around against this enormous industrial landscape. It's not a commercial picture. Since I took that picture, I think it's only in three homes. But one of the homes, I think, is Warren Beatty. I was very lucky to meet him just after I got back from North Korea. He's always been fascinated in that part of the world. And of course, he directed the film Reds way back in, I think it was one of his first film directorships. And he was fascinated by those pictures, but Warren Beatty has earned the right not to pay for my art, so I think I just gave him one. <laughs> All he had to do was give me his address book and he could get a piece of my art. I'm not a great believer in portfolio of images. I think a portfolio of images can sometimes be a little bit of a bluff. It flatters you slightly saying, here's my portfolio of pictures because I don't have one big one. And I've tended to be much more trying to find one picture than a portfolio. I think North Korea is an outlier because I don't think you can tell the story of North Korea in one picture. I think you do need a portfolio of images. We came back with imagery I felt that was strong. I knew it was never going to be a particularly commercial trip. But I think it was very smart for me to go there. And I do a lot of things that aren't smart, but I think that was one of the smarter things I've done because, as I say, it's relevant. 
I actually asked if I could leave a day early because I knew that the days they got planned for me were to go to 16 more factories in Pyongyang or 16 educational programs or sit in a cello lesson or listen to 100 people playing violins which were very much all what the state wanted me to see and being slightly spoon-fed propaganda. So the glimpses that I was being offered were not representative. And I don't want to be a puppet to anyone. And I felt that when I got back to the capital, my game was slightly up. I remember at the airport putting my XQD cards, which had all my files, some of which were stolen pictures, i.e. some of which were pictures the North Koreans would not be happy me having. And that's either because they were military or they showed just how backward economic life was on the East Coast. So I put those XQD cards in my hair gel in my wash bag. And I, I don't know why I did that, because let's face it, if they want to find something and they go into your hair gel and they find three XQD cards, manifestly, you are trying to cheat them out of something. You've got something to hide. You can't say, oh, I didn't know I had them. They must have dropped into the hair gel, sir. And of course, as it turns out, as I said earlier on, they don't care what on earth you take out of the country. The job's done. It's what you bring into the country. So almost to my huge disappointment, they didn't check anything. And then I had to get these bloody cards out of the hair gel in Beijing. So a tip to anyone leaving North Korea, do not use hair gel as a way to hide or obscure data. You don't need to. They won't look. After I got back from North Korea, the North Koreans wanted me to have a show of my pictures in London. And I went for several meetings with the uh, ambassadors because we have diplomatic relationships with the country. So the North Korean uh, embassy, it doesn't look like an embassy at all. It's like a semi-detached by a curry house in Acton. But they call you at 10 minutes notice, and I was with my children, and uh, the ambassador's right-hand man, Mr. Arrow, we'd like to, His Excellency would like to see you now. And I said, well, I'm with my kids. And they said, oh, don't worry, we'll look after your kids. So we go into the embassy, and there's a waiting room, but we can't use the waiting room. And then, so before you know it, my two kids in school uniform, aged, I don't know, their time, uh, well, they're 12 and 15, and me are sitting in this room, and then seven North Koreans with their hats and full green uniforms come and sit opposite me and my two kids. And my two kids are fairly nonplussed by this. And then they say we're negotiating about possibility of me coming back. And I said, well, listen, I'd love to do all these things for you, but is there any chance of me photographing the Supreme Leader? And the guy said, how you like to photograph Supreme Leader? And maybe I was playing along with the kids, but I just thought I'd try some humor. And I said, well, I thought, why don't we have him sitting on a rocket? And there was silence from the seven North Koreans. And then the main guy said, you funny man. And then everyone laughed. And then we're leaving the North Korean embassy. And I think my son said to me, he said, Daddy, that was really the most bizarre one hour of my life. Is there any chance that at some stage you can't just be like my friend's dad's and just be vaguely normal rather than spending an hour with seven men with big hats and green uniform? <laughs> so that's it for this episode of my podcast. My name's David Yarrow. If you haven't already subscribed to the In Focus podcast, please do. 
and please also leave any reviews that you'd like to make. If you want to see any of the photographs that we've been talking about, do look online at David Yarrow Photography. This is a co-production between the team of David Yarrow Photography led by Alex Ames and Message Heard. Produced by Jake Warren and Sandra Ferrari with mixing, editing and original theme music by Matt Huxley. Thank you again for listening and until next time. Thank you.